HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My head all twisted And I just can't get it straight You are listening to Cooking Issues. I'm Dave Arnold, and we're coming to you on the Heritage Radio Network. It's the show Cooking Issues, a show where you call in and we solve your cooking issues, related or not. Uh, Today, Cooking Issues is sponsored by Acme Smoked Fish, located in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Acme has been a mainstay in New York's culinary landscape for over 55 years. Using old-world recipes, Acme produces the finest smoked salmon, whitefish, and sable that discerning palates demand. For information on where to find Acme, Blue Hill Bay, or Ruby Bay products, visit www www.acmesmokedfish.com and they actually supply most of the most of the big places in the city so even if you don't know you've had Acme you've probably had Acme now the number to call into the radio show we're here between 12 and 12:45 every Tuesday is 718-497-2128 that's 718-497-2128 and we already have our first caller for the day hello we got uh, we got Jordan on the line yeah I'm right here hey how you doing so what's your question Hey, I'm doing pretty well. Um, you know, so uh, I want to throw a barbecue for my wife's birthday, and I've been experimenting with uh, just basically trying to cook ribs in a sous vide. I've got a sous vide supreme. Oh, okay. um, so I've been experimenting with cooking the ribs in that, um, trying to get them to the point where they're like, where they're fairly soft and yielding, and at the same time they'll still stay on the bone. Because my, my plan is to basically keep them in the machine until guests arrive, and then I just want to finish them on the grill. Right. Right? Right. That's a, that's a good call. May, may I just say, before we go any further, that you are in luck for being the first caller today. You have won some Heritage Foods boneless barbecue riblets. 
So no uh, kidding. Yeah, no kidding. So that should go. Uh, that should go uh, pretty. You know, pretty well with your barbecue. But so the, cool. He, here, here's the thing. So uh, typically, when we're going to do a rib, you can do a rib at any temperature between about fifty four four Celsius, which is rare. I wouldn't recommend that because it's kind of uh, weird. People aren't used to it. All the way up uh, to a traditional temperature of like eighty. But I would recommend something closer to sixty. It's a little bit pink on the inside still, but it's uh, you know it's it's really. Uh, it, it's a good, nice temperature. And the good thing about cooking uh, this way, and what we're talking about is low-temperature cooking. For those of you not aware, what we're doing is we're sealing the food in a bag, and we're using a water bath to very accurately keep the temperature and cook it for a long time. Now, what are the advantages of doing it this way as opposed to traditional that we've talked about, you know, the advantage you want? is that the meat's going to stay on the bone. It's not going to shred and break apart. So you'll be able, even though it's very tender, and 60, I would do it for about 48 hours, 48 to, to 56 hours in that range. Uh, you okay. That's, that's yeah. the part I was having trouble with. Is I've got, uh, you know, I was looking at some stuff from Baldwin and uh, a couple other things online, and everybody was saying, oh, yeah, you know, 12 to 24 hours tops for the ribs. And no. I just, they weren't coming out where I wanted them at all. You said 60 Celsius? 60, yeah. What, what, what temperature it's were you? About one, it's about 140. Well, yeah, 140. 60 is like yeah. a magic number because it's 140. It's easy to remember. What, oh. what, what temperature were you using? Uh, I tried everything between uh, about 135 to 155, right. but the, the factor that I was not getting right was the time to cook, and I was afraid if I left it that long, I was afraid if I left it, uh, you know, 48 hours or more, I was concerned, number one, that I was going to lose some structural integrity in the bone itself, and, and number two, I was, just, I was concerned it just wasn't going to stay on the bones, yeah. but you're saying that... Even at 48 hours, it's going to stick to the bone enough that I can toss it on the, on the grill. It's not going to fall into the rack or anything. A- absolutely. Let me, let me put it to you this way, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll leave, it, leave it at this. Right or wrong, after 24 hours, it had the texture of skirt steak. Awesome. Yeah, right? Is that right? After 24 hours, it should have had the texture right about of skirt steak. And after another 24 to 30 hours, it'll have the texture of short ribs. Okay, yeah, that's that's much closer to what I'm looking for. Yeah, all righty, super. Look, uh, cool, s- stay on the line because we got to figure out a way to get you these uh, these boneless barbecue riblets. And thanks so much for calling in. I think we already Appreciate have another, we already we already have another caller, yeah. so we're we're doing well. All right, so uh, hello, hello, hey. Hello. Yeah, I have some questions about uh, preserving cilantro. Essentially, every single time I buy it, it seems to turn into an unusable pile of mush, and all the aromatics just leave it pretty right. much right away. So I was wondering if there's a way to render it more stable. I don't have a rotovap or anything, so I'm looking for a more conventional method. Right. Cilantro actually, even in the rotovap, when you rotovap it, it doesn't stay uh, stable. This is actually an interesting question. Uh, the next segment we have, um, Harold McGee is going to be on. He's done a lot of uh, tests with preserving uh, things like herbs and berries. My guess, the problem is is that my, my guess is the way to, to do it is going to be like a quick blanch and shock, but that's probably not what you're what you're looking for. And, and the other one would be to keep the moisture level not too high so it's not going to rot, you know. Uh, right. Uh, I do dry it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you're drying it and still... With a paper towel. Yeah. You dry it with a paper towel. I mean, you could physically dry it, but it's not the same as fresh. I'm going to... What I'm going right. to do is I'm going to defer this question and Nastasha's going to remind me to ask... Uh, 
McGee. Uh, Nastasha going to ask me to remind McGee to, to answer this question, but I would guess he's going to he's going to say something uh, of the nature of making sure air can get to it in your fridge, so it's not going to turn bad. Making sure that it's not wet when it goes in. He might say something even like allowing water to get to the stems, but I don't know. And he might right. suggest something like a blanch just to kill anything that's on it, which is what he does with berries. This is not my uh, like a not my exact area of expertise, but you're lucky that McGee's going to be calling in today because it's right up his alley. So we'll make sure to ask right. him. Okay, well, actually, just beyond it, Ronnie, I mean, also, the aromatics on the plant are just so fleeting. It seems like no matter what you do to it, that they're just going to leave pretty much right away. I know, it's true. You know, I've been doing a lot of experiments recently with, uh, you know, when, you, when we rotovap, a lot of times I'll rotovap, uh, for those of you who don't know, low-temperature distillation, we do it in a rotary evaporator. We do it with alcohol just because it's the only way to really lock down those aromatics. And when you do it with water, you really, those aromatics, they, they leave very quickly. We've recently been doing experiments with uh, freezing uh, with liquid nitrogen to try and keep those aromatics, and it works pretty well. Uh, but, you know, I'm not ready to necessarily make any statements on it. Do you have liquid nitrogen lying around? Uh, no, I don't, but that doesn't mean I couldn't get some. Right, I mean, you could try. I mean, like, that that might be good, keeping it like, ultra-frozen like that. Now, it's going to go black as soon as it thaws out, unless you blanch it beforehand, but then you won't have the aromatics. So you're always right, going exactly. tr- to trade, because we do a lot of work with liquid nitrogen where we powder fresh herbs. But when you powder the fresh herbs, when they thaw, even with liquid nitrogen, they go black because you've ruptured the, uh, uh, when you blend them, you rush, rupture the tissues, and so they, they go black right. and they get that characteristic not-so-good aroma. So what we'll always do is blanch uh, in boiling water and shock and then that'll preserve it but you're still you're going to lose some of that I mean I haven't again I'll ask McGee this but you know it's very hard to get that fresh off of the plant kind of uh, kind of a flavor but yeah, this is well, I'll bring up both of these things with McGee because I know he thinks a lot about this specifically this problem because, especially because he grows his own stuff because he lives in California you know right so I apologize uh-huh. I'm going to have to defer to later in the segment but we'll get, we'll get an answer for you does that sound good wait who am I speaking yeah, to by the way absolutely my name's Chris. Hey, Chris. Thanks, thanks for calling in. We'll get, we'll, we'll get some answers for you before the hour is right, done. Yep. Also, I just had a quick question about uh, sous vide coffee. I've been just taking my coffee grounds and putting them into a bag and basically doing a, uh, a high-duration, low-temperature. Right. Like around 68C. Similar to like Kyoto. So, so higher than like a cold coffee, higher than Kyoto-style yeah, coffee. Yeah, much higher than a cold coffee. But, you know, it sort of doesn't leach out all the astringency or anything like that. Provided you don't do it for two days. Yeah, how well, how do you well, like it? Uh, I like it a lot, actually. Hmm. You know, it seems to strike a good balance as far as having a lot of coffee solids in there versus a lot of the nasty stuff that people and don't then, like. And then you coffee filter it and drink it, or what do you do? Right, exactly. I just do a coarse filtration. Huh. Well, we'll, te- we'll test that out. I've done the, the cold, and I've done a lot of work with, uh, you know, with norm- like espresso type stuff, but I've never done any kind of in-between work. We've done it with tea. We've never uh-huh. done it with, uh, with coffee. That's interesting. You know, you should post something to uh, our forums, and let's get a discussion going on that. Now, I'll try and, uh, you know, www.cookingissues.com forward slash forums. Post something like that, because, you know, I think that's interesting. I'm sure a lot of the people, uh, you know, who troll around uh, will think that's interesting, too. Maybe we can get something, something started, huh? All right, great. All right, cool. Thanks, Thank, a lot. thanks a lot for calling in. All right. All right, bye. Do we have another caller? We do? Yeah. Oh, hey, we have another caller. Great. Hello? Hi. Hey, who am I speaking with? This is Nathan. Hey, Nathan. Um, so I had a question. I, I remember a post you made a couple couple months ago, I guess, on cooking issues about uh, how carbonation was perceived. And you mentioned sort of offhand that you tried stuff that was carbonated, or not carbonated, but force, force gas with NO2. Uh, yeah. Wondering about other gases that uh, 
that you've tried dissolving in in liquids and what that tasted like. All right, well, uh, you know, uh, N2O nitrous and CO2 are the two readily available gases that um, that are soluble to a large degree in water. Uh, I don't, mm-hmm. you know, and also alcohol, uh, and also CO2 is very soluble in alcohol, uh, and also I don't know about CO2, but N2O, I guess CO2 as well, also soluble in liquid fats. So these are. Um, you know, they're very soluble, which is why you can put a lot of it in and why you can get a big effect. Other gases, you know, other ones that I know of that, you know, are food grade aren't as as soluble. So you're not going to get the same kind of – now, you could definitely get some sort of maybe aroma or flavor out of putting some gases in. And some mm-hmm. no- noxious gases can clearly go in. But I haven't experimented with any other gases because basically, you know, th- you get the effect of carbonation, which is what I'm looking for out of the CO2. And then we use mm-hmm. the, the nitrous as a – as kind of a balancing act. So if I want a lively beverage, I want a lot of bubbles in it. And the, the, the number of bubbles in it is determined by the total pressure of dissolved gas in it because that's what's determining how fast it's bubbling, right? And also right. the bubble size for a given liquid and a bunch of other things. But uh, if you added that much CO2, it would rip your face off. You know, your nose would be, you know, we've had, I like actually overcarbonated things, but, you know, but and I like my face being ripped off. But the, uh, the, the thing is, is in order to make it a, a really lively be- beverage, but more mellow, we, we have the N2O, the side effect of the N2O is that it's sweet, right? Now, there are situations, like I'm sure people have heard of uh, beer gas. So beer gas is a mixture of CO2 and straight nitrogen. And the reason that they put the nitrogen in is because they want to keep their kegs at a high pressure so that they can push uh, beer out at a reasonable rate. But they don't want to increase the bubble load by adding too much CO2. So they're adding a relatively insoluble gas, Right, nitrogen to it, so that it can, uh, so that it basically just adds extra pressure. I believe also it's nitrogen and not CO two that's in the Guinness widget that's sitting in the in the bottom of a Guinness. And I think what's going on there is they're literally just forcing some bubbles into it to create kind of a creamy head, even though they're not increasing the actual total amount of CO two in it. Right. So there are reasons to use other other gases, but I don't know uh, uh, anything that would help necessarily in a in a carbonation setting. What, do you have any uh, ideas of things you want to try? No, I was just wondering, because you said, you know, CO2 is kind of sour tasting, N2O is kind of sweet tasting, if there were any other things that would sort of give you other flavors. Well, I'm sure, uh, yeah. this, obviously. I mean, I'm sure we could put some, you know, sulfur-containing gases in that would dissolve in just fine, but it would make it taste god-awful. You know what I mean? Right. But, uh, but I haven't, I haven't, uh, you know, maybe someone will, you know, call in or post uh, something they think is... Uh, Good to try, but they're they're the two readily available food grade gases that dissolve to a, a fairly uh, large degree into into your you know into beverages. So that those are the ones. That's why we use them. Gotcha. Cool. All right. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for calling in. All right. So uh, that uh, brings us uh, pretty close. We're, I'm going to talk about one thing before we go to our first break. But coming up on the next, uh, right after the next break, uh, Harold McGee is going to be here. He's going to help us answer answer some questions. One thing I wanted to address, we had an email question. Oh, uh, for your calls, by the way, please call in to 718-497-2128. That's uh, 718-497-2128. Uh, so... We had a really interesting question come in via email, and don't worry, all the email questions we'll get to, so don't worry if I'm not doing yours first. Um, someone uh, called in, uh, Matt, Matt, how do you pronounce Matt's name? Hassa? Hass? Hassa? Hass? Hass? Uh, Hass? Hass? 
uh, he his restaurant group uh, is using someone who grows their uh, own cattle and is using ultrasound to check the marbling of the meat while while they're alive. So basically, you're taking a cow, they're walk, they're putting an, an ultrasound uh, on the cow, and they're trying to measure uh, the fat content of the cow. So the, the the idea is trying to get a higher percentage of prime marbled uh, meat than you otherwise would. And said he had never uh, heard about this te- technique before, and he wanted to uh, n- know something about it. Know about uh, these guys running tests. Um, this is a kind of, I don't know how well, I don't know how often it's used nowadays, but using ultrasound to test the fat level of animals has a fairly long history. They've been doing it since at least uh, the 80s, um, and there's a bunch of different ways. So basically, uh, lean muscle meat and uh, fat have uh, different uh, properties for ultrasound. The speed of ultrasound, uh, ultrasound is just basically any sound wave faster than you can hear it, uh, than you can hear over about 20,000 uh, cycles per second. And it can penetrate uh, through tissue, which is why they use it to check for babies, for ultrasounds, and for medical diagnostic stuff. They can take pictures of it. But uh, even simply without an image, uh, you can tell based on the speed that the ultrasound is going through, uh, whether it's going through more fat or more lean. You could tell because fat also reflects ultrasounds in different ways. Uh, it also uh, can, I think, shift the frequency as it goes through. So there's, there's a several different techniques they can use with ultrasounds to take a live animal uh, in a very quick, you know, easy-to-do way out in the field with a, with a piece of machinery and uh, take a picture and figure out um, – Figure out kind of uh, a best guess as to what the uh, tech, you know, the inside of the muscle is like in terms of its fat content. Uh, and for in general, there's a lot of interesting work being done with ultrasounds. And a, pa- a review paper you might be interested in is "Ultrasonic Innovations in the Food Industry from the Laboratory to Commercial Productions" uh, by uh, Alec uh, Alex Patist et al. And that was in uh, what journal? The Journal for Innovative Food Science and Emerging Technologies in July 2007. Uh, thanks for calling. In and please post a question to the blog on that. I'm interested in talking about ultrasound and meat quality more. And this is our first break. You're listening to Cooking Issues on Heritage Radio Network. Two, one, two, three. Hey, baby, 
Dave Arnold, you are listening to Cooking Issues on Heritage Radio Network, the show where you call in with your cooking issues, and if we're lucky, we get to solve them. Our number here is 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128, and we're coming to you live every Tuesday from 12 to 12.45 Eastern Standard Time. And we have a real treat today because uh, calling in as our call-in guest is Harold McGee. And Harold McGee, for those of you that don't know, there's probably a couple of you that don't know, uh, is the uh, ultimate all-time master blaster of science as it relates to delicious things in the kitchen. So not industrial science, but the science of how to make things taste better. And he's calling in from San Francisco. Harold, you there? I am Dave. Hey, good to talk to you. How are you doing? Likewise. Pretty well, thanks. How about you? Yeah, I'm doing well, doing well. So uh, actually, you know, uh, Harold, we have a caller calling in right now. So you want to just just take their question real quick, and then we'll... uh, then we'll, we'll hit some of the email questions we've got. Sure. All righty. So uh, who do we have? We have Derek on the line. Hi, Dave. Hey. Great to talk to both of you. Um, big fans, both, both you, Dave, and Harold. Uh-huh. I, I was thinking the other day, um, would, it, would you get more flavor out of your stocks if you started with distilled water? Because it tends to, it pulls in stuff such as carbon dioxide. Would it be more... Would it pull in more flavor from uh, whatever meat or what you were using as the base, do you think? Harold, what do you think? I I, I wouldn't think you'd get much of an effect because it's going to become non-distilled water pretty quick as soon as you put stuff into it. And you typically – what do you think, Harold? Uh, I agree completely. Yeah, there's. Uh, I mean, it's 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 distilled and nice and pure, but the moment you put anything in it, it's not. And uh, the difference between, I think, you know, a, a few parts per million of of minerals in tap water and uh, and distilled water by the time you've made the stock is not going to be detectable. But, I mean, maybe it depends also on how hard your particular water is. I mean, there, the the Jap- there, you know the Japanese chefs insist that there's a huge difference in kombu stocks. Uh, uh, if if the water is excessively hard, and they so they say that you know the European water, it's hard for them to make a good uh, kombu stock, so they use uh, bottled water. And of course, for beer brewing, it's important. But I just I don't I don't know that for regular stock, right, Harold? I mean, wouldn't you wouldn't you think? I mean. 
Yeah, the thing about kombu is that it, it's so delicate, and uh, and you're extracting for a relatively short period of time, you know, just a few minutes. And uh, so I think, uh, you know, something where you're throwing in meat bones and vegetables and cooking for hours, uh, it's going to be much less important. Of course, you know, if you do the experiment, you taste them blind, and you, you know, get back to us, we'll post it because, they, you know, there's no – I always say that, you know, whatever I think is, uh, you know, secondary to what you actually observe when you do it. Awesome. All right. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. All right. Thank, well, thanks so much uh, for calling in. And uh, b- before we go to anyone else, Harold, did, 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 I don't know if you heard before, we had someone calling in who wanted to preserve the, uh, the kind of the aromatics in cilantro, and I said that you might be the, the best person to talk to about the best way to keep cilantro in top condition to try and make it smell like you just took it out of your garden. Do you have any tips on that? Boy, it's it's tough with with fresh herbs because uh, those flavor compounds are really fugitive and the cells are delicate and when they dry out, you know, everything gets scrambled up inside the cells. And um, in the case of cilantro, you know, the the more that you uh, beat it up, if you try to make a pesto, for example, the flavor actually becomes much milder. And so, what you want to do, I think probably is um, uh, just dry it as gently as possible just to, to minimize the damage to the cells. Right. He says he was doing it with a paper towel, but also I think people store it too tightly a wrap. You almost want those like uh, those bags that allow air to go through them, right? Because I think he's also having loss in the refrigerator. I think he said they were turning brown and, and kind of muddy you know, what do you think? Uh-huh. No? Well, yeah, I think, uh, you know, if, if, it's, if it's a matter of keeping it alive, you know, pre- uh, by preserving, I thought you meant, you know, drying or something like that. Uh, uh, if, you're, if you just want to keep them alive, then, yeah, what I would do is, um, uh, you know, cut the, cut the stems to get a fresh uh, end and then put them in a glass of water and then put a bag around the glass. Right. Uh, you know, put a, a rubber band around the bag, and that gives you, it prevents the, the cilantro from drying out in the refrigerator, keeps them cool, gives them a supply of water. Uh, they're not going to be happy in the dark, so that won't last forever, but it's better than nothing. And and there you go. There's the answer from the source. We got another interesting one that I think is uh, up your alley, uh, Harold. Uh, Jeff Saltz writes in, wrote to Nastasha. Uh, you know, we had take email questions as well, and says if we can whip cream with sugar and we can whip egg yolks with sugar, then why can't we whip creme anglaise? And just to verify, this morning before we came out to the show, I tried to whip some creme anglaise, and indeed, it does not whip. Um, you know, I also know that there's some problems. Sometimes people have problems whipping uh, cre- even straight cream that's been heated. I mean, what do you, what do you think? What do you think's going on here? Well, in the case of the creme anglaise, uh, it, it's true that uh, cream can be can be whipped, and egg yolks and egg whites can both be whipped into a foam. Uh, but that's true of the raw versions of those things. And right. Creme anglaise has been cooked. So, uh, uh, and in the case of cream, whipped cream, it only whips if it's cold. So it's the. the Conditions aren't right. The proteins have been denatured, and the temperature is wrong. Right. But I didn't. I mean, I took the creme anglaise and cooled it down to like back to fridge temperature. Still doesn't whip. There's uh-huh. some, there's something uh-huh. about heating cream and then cooling it that made. Do you need to wait a long time? What are you disrupting in cream that stops it from whipping like that? 
boy, uh, with with cream all by itself. I mean, the, in, in a creme anglaise, of course, the cream is the the, the surfaces of the uh, oil droplets are going to get coated by the egg proteins and by you know whatever else you might have in there, sugars in the way. So it's just going to make it much more difficult. It, in the case of just plain old cream, heating it and then cooling it back down. Offhand, I can't see why that would. Um, uh, make it harder to whip. Yeah, I mean, I've never done the experiment myself, but I know people who have done it and said that they were able to do it, and I've known people who've done it and said that they weren't able to do it. So I don't know, I don't, I don't know where that where that is. But, yeah. but, but well, I, I know that uh, the, you know the the fat inside the the droplet takes a while to get organized again after it's been heated. You know, you heat it up, it becomes molten inside, and then as you chill it down, it, it begins to crystallize. And I think, you know, maybe maybe it just takes a while for you to get that the optimum crystal structure so that when you whip it, the, the edges of the crystals break through the membrane and begin to stick to each other, and, and you get a good foam. Huh. That makes sense. Almost like the theory of uh, aging uh, ice cream base. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Jeff. Well, I hope that uh, answers uh, your question. Um, let me see whether we have anything. Ah, here's one that, uh, Harold, you'll enjoy. Uh, uh, Val called in and said, uh, I love the radio show. I'm traveling to Turkey in three weeks. I was wondering if you guys had any suggestions as to where I could find some good Celep Donderma flour in Turkey. And uh, for, for those of you that know, like uh, part of the current interest in uh, Celep here in the United States is due to an article that uh, Harold wrote uh, a number of years ago in the New York Times on stretchy ice creams. Uh, and Celep is an orchid powder uh, that is uh, available in Turkey but can't be exported because it's not that it's endangered, but they just don't have enough. They don't allow exports of it. And uh, if you add this to ice cream and then beat the ice cream vigorously, it forms a stretchy, stretchy ice cream. It's kind of unlike uh, any other ice cream, and it's a traditional uh, kind of product over there. But I don't know of any – I don't – Never been to Turkey. I've only ever had it smuggled back for me. What about you, uh, Harold? Do you know of any? I've never been to Turkey either. So, um, yeah, I don't. I, I really don't know. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. There are a couple of uh, people who um, uh, who blog, who are, who know the, the Turkey and the Middle East in general really well, and who blog. And you might uh, check their sites and ask them. Uh, one of them is Anissa Helu. A N I S S A H E L O U. I forget the the uh, the name of her site, but uh, she knows that part of the world really, really well, and she could probably give you some good advice. Right, and it's important to get a, a good source because uh, different salad powders are very different in how much of the active principle they have in it, and. Uh, you know, also, like, they sell some that's just meant for, for drinks, and it doesn't necessarily have the same uh, capability to make uh, ice cream stretchy. Um, the two times I had it were smuggled back by uh, interns, and they just, you know, they packed it. Uh, one time, though, the, the, my intern's mom got stopped in the airport for coming from Turkey with, you know, a vacuum bag thing of, you know, kind of powder and spent three hours talking to, you know, a very irate customs official about how it was not any sort of drug product that they were trying to bring back in, <laughs> and it didn't uh, you know it, it didn't make it in but you know i would get as much as you can as as you can you're going to use uh, anywhere from half to 1% in your recipe so that, that gives you any idea of how much you need to buy and uh, val asked one more question uh, what would the results be with salad ice cream if you froze it and spun it in a paco jet alas this will not work uh, the paco jet i've never had any luck trying to paco jet it it needs to be manually beaten after it's frozen you need to manually freeze uh, you know, freeze it and then manually beat it and that's the only 
way to get that texture. Would you agree, Harold, or no? Yeah, that, that's right. PacoJet is is great for a lot of things, but it, what it's basically doing is chopping the the mixture into tiny little bits, and that's the absolute reverse of what you want to do with uh, salap ice cream. You want to create this uh, this network like a gluten network in bread dough, and that's what gives gives it that wonderful stretchy quality. All right, all right. So we're about to go out to our second break. Before we do, I'm going to give you the number to call in one more time, 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. We're coming back with Harold McGee. This is Cooking Issues. listening to Cooking Issues on Heritage Radio Network. I am Dave Arnold. I'm here in the studio with Nastasha Lopez. And on the telephone, we have Harold McGee. Uh, so you have uh, one last chance to call in at 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. And I'll sweeten up the pot. We will give away another packet of riblets if you call in. Uh, anyway, so... Uh, Harold, we have a couple more qu- email questions we have to get through, uh, so why, right. don't we, why don't we take take care of those? Um, she, we had someone call, uh, call in actually last week or write in last week who's interested in kind of Doug Baldwin's uh, formula for calculating the uh, calculating when meat is going to be done. And I know you've done uh, some work on it. So D- Douglas Baldwin has this this kind of rather <clears throat> complex. Well, not for him because he's a math professor, but complex uh, formula for determining uh, the you know the heat of uh, uh, you know when, when meat's going to get to it. But uh, what do you what do you think is the best thing? Is I think the best thing is to just cook a couple of things and get a feel for the size of thing, and then just go go that way. What do you think? 
Yeah, I agree. It's uh, it is true that you you can calculate uh, how long it's going to take for something to heat up in a water bath, and uh, it takes a lot longer than you think because the um, the difference between the temperature of the bath and the temperature of the food is relatively small, and that means that um, you know there's there's not much of a uh, and uh, a push behind the heat on the outside get to the inside so it, it it takes takes quite a while but you know the the calculations great they can't account for all the variables that you're going to encounter like variations in the the thickness of the meat and the uh, you know the effect of the wrapping whether if, if the if the wrap isn't isn't perfectly sealed if you've got a couple of bubbles here and there it's it's going to slow things down so I agree the best thing to do is just to have several packages and check every once in a while give them a good good long time and maybe use the formula as a, as a guide yeah. But, uh, but I mean, test it. Yeah, I've never had really much of a need to know exactly how long it was going to take. But uh, but also Nathan Mirvold posted a bunch of things a number of years back on eGullet. Um, oh, I see. We have another we have another caller. Uh, who do we have on the line? Uh, hello. Hello. Yeah. Hi. How you doing? Um, uh, I'm a chef working uh, on the East Coast, and uh, I have a couple of questions about sous vide cookery. Um, it's a couple of specific situations we're in right now that we're trying to kind of fine-tune right I, I don't want to mention anything specific because we're still kind of operating under the radar right right um, so right now we're uh, working with a couple different cuts of meat um, some have been really successful some we're still trying to you know they're very good but they still could be a lot better right uh, right now we're working with a, uh, a, a thick cut pork chop which is kind of cut from the shoulder end so it has a high fat content mm-hmm. and um, you know we tried cooking it at around 52 54 degrees Celsius or anywhere between four hours 12 hours up to 24 hours and uh, the problem is that you know the fat isn't breaking down in, a, in an appealing way you know right. we used to cook it conventionally in a in more of a hot oven and we get like a nice sort of caramelization on the fat um, and it would be very pal- palatable. Right. And, uh, you know, at those, those low temperatures, it would just kind of be like hammy and, and you know, just ha- not have a nice mouthfeel. So then we upped the temp up to 70 degrees. Too high, yeah. And we ran it. Yeah. We ran it with a thermocoupler uh, just to check the temp. We'd pull it at, like, 54 degrees. Right. And that was better. Yeah, but, but still, that's still, too high, right? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. It was still a little, like, it got a little hammy. Um, you know, it wasn't perfect. Then we brought it down to 64 degrees. Um, and that was kind of a nice, you know, medium. We we're kind of happy with that, and we just basically would run it uh, in the thermocoupler until we hit, you know, 54 degrees Celsius. On the inside. So I was just wondering, yeah. If, uh, yeah, I was wondering if you had any comments on that or any ideas of, of yeah. directions we can go. So low temp, fat's not going to really render out when you're cooking exactly. uh, low temp, and that's kind of one of the main things to work around when you're doing this kind of work. And, in fact, you know, Harold will agree, like, that's one of the things, you know, he, you don't particularly like some of these dishes because we don't get things like the, like the rendering of fat. But mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give you a, a agree, Harold, or no? Yeah, 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 exactly. But, you know, uh, w- one technique you might want to look into, first of all, are you, are you doing a pre-sear on your meat or no? We're not. No, yeah. we haven't tried that yet. I would do a pre-sear on the meat that's going to start getting the flavor going, and also you notice you're going to pick up a lot more color a lot quicker uh, on the finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. But uh, you might do something we, we do called uh, low temp for insurance purposes. And so what that is okay. is you cook the meat to like a, a medium, like uh, you want the inside to be whatever you want it to be, mm-hmm. you know, 50 inch, fifty high 50s and change or like right. uh, 60, somewhere in there, right? You cook it through, then you chill the whole thing down, then you throw it in a blazing hot oven. 
oven, right? Now you're just focused on the external texture of the of the chop, and uh-huh. and and you can pull it as soon as it looks good because right. the inside's already been cooked and it's going to be warm exactly. enough. And so th- this way you can serve something where you get a lot of the benefits: reproducibility, uh, you know, fairly quick turnaround time uh, on on a pork chop uh, that you would and get more of a traditional flavor out of it, uh, mm-hmm. where you know, but still get some of the benefits of low temperature. And so th- this works a lot on bigger bigger cuts or uh, think things like that where you basically you just want to ensure that the inside is done so we call that kind of low temperature for insurance purposes and so you might want to okay. look into something like that like just cook it through to the lowest temperature you want cool it mm-hmm. down and then you know take it from normal in a, in a hot hot oven and just get that right. outside where you want it and i think you might be happy with the results because a lot of times we want a more traditional tasting uh especially on something like a pork chop what do you think harold right uh, we, uh, Yep, sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> I have nothing to add. Yeah. <laughs> and and definitely like with the at the sixty four degrees is actually it's it's great. It's really really good. But we just you know we want to see if there's if we're missing anything and, and if we can try and take it to a higher level. Which this sounds like a, something we're definitely going to try. Yeah, I'd be um, I'd be careful with the the, the lower temps like fifty two fifty four. Here's why. Mm-hmm. I mean, will you kill bacteria down there? Yeah, probably. But uh, one of the issues is when you load up a circulator uh, and you g- hit those fairly low temperatures. If the circulator is crowded at all, uh, sometimes um, the, the the pieces of meat that are near each other, they'll be shielded from the temperature for long enough at those low temperatures that you'll get uh, lactic acid bacteria growing in. So if you look in the people who post on sous vide, you'll notice people saying, oh, my thing smelled like sauerkraut, my thing smelled like blue cheese. And it's right. because they're not killing the lactic acid bacteria fast enough. So when you're doing those low, low temperatures, I would recommend a quick dunk of the uh, bag into um, into um, maybe into simmering water just to kill all the lactic acid bacteria that are on the outside and um, and then uh, and, th- and then go, go from there is another thing if you're having that problem I know that some people are having okay. that, that that problem um, and just just real quick I know you guys are, have a lot to cover but do you have any sort of guideline basic temperatures that you work with uh, in your laboratory just for for you know for poultry let's say game meat right. you know stuff that well, we, you know things like that. What's your brazing temperature? What's your? Um, I, I do a lot of brazes at sixty, um, okay. because the lower ones I think are you know people don't really people don't really uh, they want their brazes much lower than that. And uh, mm-hmm. when I go higher than about sixty three, I start feeling like I'm losing the advantage. Sixty three, sixty four, I start losing the right. advantages of low temperature. So I tend to stay in that range. Uh, but the the best we have cooking charts. If you go to cookingissues.com and look up uh, low low temp. Charts. There's a chart okay. that has basically all of our temperatures on it. Um, you guys work with. Temperatures and times that we work with. Yeah, and that's that's pretty that's pretty up to date. Um, okay, so I, great. I, I would I would check that out. And then let me let me just knock something out real quick, Harold. Before because I want to talk to you something about because Harold and I are actually going to go to Tales of the Cocktail. Oh wait, we have another caller, so I can't talk about Tales of the Cocktail. All right, we have another caller coming in, Harold. <laughs> okay. Hello. Okay. How you doing? How are you, man? All right. I'm here to ask you a question. All right. So I know you guys are talking sous vide, but I don't have a sous vide at home. Right. Uh, but I do have an oven. Okay. So my ent- my entree into kind of the technical side of cooking has been to kind of fudge it at home. Right. I'm trying to, uh, I brine my meat usually before I, I roast it. So are you familiar with this River Cottage meat book? Yes, I have so it. In the River Cottage Meat book, he'll talk about how he describes a two-part roasting process. One at like 425, and then it comes down 50, 75 degrees for like the longer roast to cook through. 
right. you know, to make the crust and then to cook the, the meat through. Right. So, but I, I found at home after brining that it didn't work. What I've been doing is roasting a chicken the whole time at the same temperature. So I wanted to know what, what you guys thought about that, about that two temperature versus one temperature and about that process. Because I've been, you know, getting a good brown on the meat and cooking it all the way through with a lot. You know, the more uh, technique I applied to it, the worse the results got. All right, Harold, I'm going to let you take this one because you focus a lot on these kinds of techniques, specifically with ovens. So I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you take this guy. Okay. <laughs> well, um, my feeling is that you can you can get a good result uh, in a lot of different ways, and um, it just depends on on the details of what you do and and what you're looking for in the end. So the the high temp followed by low temp is uh, you know pretty standard um, way of doing things. Uh, gives you that initial blast of high temperature, starts the browning on the surface, and uh, then you turn the heat down to cook it through more gently. Uh, if you left it at the high temperature too long, then you'd end up overcooking the outside while the inside was still cooking through. Mm-hmm. But with something like a chicken, which is relatively small and which cooks relatively quickly, uh, I, I find that you can get good results uh, with all sorts of techniques. You can stick a uh, chicken in at 500 degrees, and uh, it's done really quickly, and it comes out pretty juicy because even though the outside temperature is so high, uh, the rapidity of the cooking means that you, you end up with a you know, reasonably uh, juicy inside. You can also cook um, at, a, at a low temperature. Um, when you say that you're cooking at the same temperature constantly, is it, is it like, uh, what, 400 degrees, 375? No, it's below four. Like it's like 350, 375 right in there. Yeah, yeah. And you're happy with the... Put it in for like 45 minutes. Uh-huh. And you're happy with the, with the browning that you get on the, on the skin? It works because I think the brine, the brine and then the drying after the brine allows it ah, to brown okay. easier. Yeah, yeah. So you you take it out of the brine and you what do you do? Let let it sit in the fridge for a day to to dry exactly. out. Exactly. I take yeah. I brine it overnight and then in the morning, you know, with my cereal, I'll take it out and dry it. Dry it and when I come home, then I make it for dinner. Yeah. So that's the, the those are the little details that can make all the difference in the world. If you if you brine without the drying, then you're going to end up with a soggy chicken at 400 degrees or 375, and you really need that high temperature to bake out the the moisture and get the browning going. Yeah. But if you've already pre-dried it, then then that's not an issue. And then it forms that kind of pellicle, you know, and it gets brown there. The skin gets kind of clear and tacky. Mm-hmm. Um, my other question to you is if you're cooking that at 500, really high, really fast, do you have to rest it then? Like, is there a tinfoil? Do you have to, I mean, because how does it cook through that fast? Uh, resting it does uh, is a good idea, uh, and that's because the the outside parts of the of the bird have gotten pretty hot, and it's a chance for the for the juices to um, to kind of redistribute. You know, they're they've been squeezed out, but they haven't exited the, mu- the muscle completely, and so they can kind of settle in and find the find the dry spots and uh, and and redistribute and give you something more evenly juicy. Okay. 
Well, thanks for you answering. I was just feeling guilty because of the two different temperatures versus the one. I felt that somehow I was being unfaithful, and now I realize that the drying made all the difference. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you only owe your faith to a delicious result. Exactly. (laughs) The proof is in the pudding. All right. Thanks thanks for calling in. And we have a very short amount of time. I've got to knock two things out with you, Harold. We've got a follow-up, and this is right up your alley. Uh, Chris, who called in uh, before about the cilantro, just sent us a, a text saying, uh, I realized I forgot to mention that I've had some luck preventing rot by washing with aqueous ozone. Uh, it's really the stabilization of the flavor itself that I'm after, and he thinks that maybe it's decanalinate that he's in it. And they, it's so, this is a quote, it's so damn fleeting even in totally unrotten bunches. Anything to say about that, Harold? Uh, well, um, <laughs> it, it just speaks to the uh, the variability among uh, among people and their sensitivity to these uh, aroma compounds because there there are people who who can't come within uh, a mile of a bunch of cilantro without smelling the you know the tiniest quantities so it it may just be that um, uh, he uh, he is he he loves the the aroma but is less sensitive to it and so it's going to be harder to find a bunch with with enough of the stuff to to really make an impact for him. Mm. All right, and then we we have one quick question that came in. I promise I get to all the early email ones. He uh, Scott from your hometown, San Francisco, wants to know how to make a foam. Uh, to put on top of his dirty martini with an olive brine based on a drink he had at the Bazaar in uh, Los Angeles uh, and just wants to know some basic pointers. Can he do it with uh, stuff from the supermarket? Yes, I would get yourself some uh, I would get yourself some, some uh, lethicin, the granulated kind, uh, and, and or xanthan gum and or a combination. I would not add any more than about a quarter percent or so of uh, xanthan. You could actually add a little more, but I wouldn't add much more. Uh, and anything up to about half... Uh, uh, to three quarters of a percent of lecithin. Put a stick blender into the mixture. Hold it at an angle so that the blade of the stick blender is going in and out of the uh, liquid, and that's going to cause the bubbling and frothing. Uh, and you should be able to get uh, a foam. If not, just post a question to uh, the forums or to Cooking Issues, and uh, and we'll answer it. Uh, Harold and I are actually going to uh, in a couple of days. Actually, going to both be in New Orleans. We're going to Tales of the Cocktail, which is an event where Harold will be speaking with my good buddy uh, Tony Conigliaro and good buddies and Audrey. Saunders. And then um, one more cocktail-related thing. Uh, if you want to come learn high-tech cocktail stuff, including some home-friendly things, uh, from uh, me personally and Nils, my, my, uh, the head of the French culinary and my partner in crime here, uh, we're doing a class on June 28th at the French Culinary Institute at 6 p.m. Uh, sadly, we're out of time, and I'm really upset because, Harold, I had a bunch of interesting stuff to talk to you about with uh, new rotary evaporation breakthroughs that we made just yesterday, but I guess that'll wow. have to... Yeah. Uh, turns out I think I might have a way to do really delicious distillations water-based and then add it to alcohol quickly to try and keep the aroma in. I, I found that like I can with liquid nitrogen, I can, uh, I can basically, uh, even though water-based distillations are normally you know, not so flavorful, so fleeting, that if, you, if I'd use a cold finger with liquid nitrogen, do my distillation that way, and then immediately melt it into alcohol, that I get a very good result, uh-huh. but I'm still working with it. So I was hoping to talk to you wow. about that on the radio, but alas, we're out of time. So I hope, Harold, I hope you enjoyed calling in. I enjoyed having you. Hopefully you can come again. Uh, Love to. Anyone who uh, texted Nastasha a little bit later, I'm sorry we didn't get to your questions. We'll get to them next time. And you've been listening to uh, Cooking Issues on Heritage Radio Network, brought to you by Acme Smoked Fish. Thank you. Thank you.